بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين In the previous episode we discussed the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam recorded in Sahih al-Bukhari where he said لا تبيع الذهب بالذهب إلا سواء بسواء Do not sell gold for gold unless it is equivalent and obviously hand to hand In that episode we spoke a little bit about the history of money we spoke about gold and silver we also spoke about paper money or more correctly paper currency what we term today as our bank notes i then planned to speak about the hadith of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam where he speaks about selling fruit and when one should sell it when one is allowed to sell it etc etc however after having a long and hard think about it i thought it would be appropriate to complete the previous episode and mention some rulings about money which is new or a new concept of money before we begin obviously we are looking at this from an islamic angle our main aim is to look at islamic rulings derive islamic rulings discuss them etc we are not giving financial advice or legal advice as we all know that laws in countries are different what may be legal here is illegal somewhere else etc so we are not giving financial advice we are not speaking about the law in a certain country we just want to take what's apparent and what's actually on the market so to say and discuss this looking at it from an islamic perspective we ask allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us the tawfiq amin today a lot of us may have heard of the terms bitcoin and blockchain and cryptocurrency more more so those who've gone to actually look into it come to masail for example was there a central bank at the time of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam if there was one who ran it if there wasn't then what's the ruling of a central bank etc etc the deeper you go into this topic you find that there are more and more and more masail inshallah we want to mention this in a little bit of detail but we also want to give a little bit of an overview because not everybody fully understands what's a blockchain what's bitcoin what's a cryptocurrency why are there islamic rulings related to it so inshallah we'll try and give a little bit of an overview so somebody who doesn't know anything about this topic will be able to get an idea about it inshallah we'll try and do that without going into too much technical stuff or techno babble as they term it to understand this whole complex system we need a starting point where is the starting point what does bitcoin claim to have solved what technology does it use there is an ancient problem known as the byzantine generals problem this problem has been around for thousands of years and nobody has really found a solution what is this problem to understand this problem imagine that there is a general this general wants to attack a city so he's divided his army into two groups one will enter the city at dawn from the east and one will enter the city at dawn from the west for them to be successful and for them to overtake the city they have to have a coordinated attack and they both have to enter at the same time the question now arises is how do they both guarantee how are they all at consensus when it comes to the entry to the city 
how can they trust that everybody is on time? They will all enter at dawn. Remember, this is an age-old problem for hundreds of, or thousands of years. They don't have cell phones. They don't have walkie-talkies. If they had to send a person on horseback, he may be kidnapped by the enemy or somebody from the enemy may pose as an imposter. Somebody may say they could use smoke signals, but what if the enemy sees these signals? The answer to this problem is, for all these years, nobody has found an answer. Bitcoin claims to have solved this problem with something called blockchain technology. Remember, in today's time, we hear a lot of this Bitcoin blockchain. Blockchain is not Bitcoin. However, Bitcoin is built on something called the blockchain. So when we look at these currencies or cryptocurrencies, we must remember there's a few different aspects to them. Same like how our current monetary system works. There is money, then there is a central bank, those who actually give out the money or print the money. Then there are those who record the transactions. All these are separate entities. So same when it comes to Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. There is the money itself, the coins themselves. Then there is the technology it's built on. That's the blockchain. Then there are those who keep a record of the transactions. And these are called the miners when it comes to the Bitcoin network. And inshallah, we'll go into that in a bit more detail. And we'll mention some of the rulings regarding this. Getting back to our problem. People have not found a solution for this for many, many years until Bitcoin came along. What does this problem mean if it persists in our current day-to-day -day activities? Remember, we're talking about money, so let's look at it. If there are two people who are far away and they cannot come to consensus, they cannot come to an agreement as to what is happening without trusting one another, then this means they need a central party, a third party who is central, who they both trust. So to give you an example, if you are in South Africa and you want goods from China, two different countries, far away, you are worried that if you send your money first, the goods may not come. The supplier may take the money. And the supplier is worried that if he sends the goods first, you may take those goods and not pay for them. What solution did they come up with? One of them is where they have a letter of credit. Basically, they've appointed the bank. The bank now comes in the middle and guarantees. They say to the supplier that we guarantee this person has the money. And they also tell you that we guarantee that this person has got the goods. So once the goods leave the port, then the money is credited to the supplier. So again, understanding this problem in our day-to-day -day lives. How do we trust somebody who is far away without having or without needing a third party? There has been no solution to this. Now we fast forward a little bit to 2008. 2008, as we all know, is when the financial crisis struck. There was a lot of panic, a lot of difficulty. People lost their homes, their jobs. And life became very tough. At the same time, there was a new concept that came out. And this was the paper of a person who was writing about Bitcoin. Remember, the idea of cryptocurrencies, it goes back well before 2008. 
in the 90s there were people trying but none of them was successful until 2008 when bitcoin came one of the problems or one of the reasons for the financial collapse as seen by many especially those in the decentralized world is because we have a centralized party or a centralized entity who is looking after everything it's very possible that human nature takes over they become unethical they may cheat they may print money where they don't have the supply or they don't have anything to back it they don't have something to back it and they may do all sorts of things so this idea or this notion claims that the problem is always with a third party the problem always comes when you need to trust someone else because this someone else may become unethical or they may change overnight in 2008 a person or a group of people called satoshi nakamoto using a pseudonym they proposed a peer to peer payment system where i would send money for example to you without having to trust this third party directly he came up with the idea called the blockchain or blockchain technology where people could transact without having to know who is on the other side and without having to trust the person on the other side so let's go into a bit more detail a blockchain as it implies is a chain of blocks so you have one block this block has information in it so every time a transaction occurs or something happens it's recorded in a block every 10 minutes a new block of information is joined to the older blocks and this in turn builds a chain This chain is open for everybody to see anybody who wants to maintain this record it's like keeping accounts anybody who wants to maintain this record can maintain this record so here we find if i transact with you it eventually gets recorded not by one entity by many different people who are recording these transactions and this in brief is how the blockchain technology works what incentivizes these people to carry on keeping transactions inshallah we'll mention this so again to recap we mentioned that there's different aspects there's the coins themselves or the currencies then there's the technology it's built on which is the blockchain technology and i gave a very brief description on it basically they've made a system where they don't need to trust the person on the other side they don't need to trust the person who's verifying this transaction and we also mentioned that there are those people who maintain the network and record these transactions now we go into a little bit more detail when we look at bitcoin we find that it has quite a few characteristics that are not common with the currency we use today so for example number 1 it is decentralized there is no central person who owns it there is no central person who runs it there is no central person who makes the decisions and can decide when the money supply should go up should go down take away from somebody else etc also there is no physical presence when it comes to these coins you can't go to an atm and pull them out another thing is who is the person who invented this is he a person is the group of people is it a government agency nobody knows so when it comes to discussing this from an islamic perspective we find that again there are a lot of rulings regarding this 
Number one, when it comes to cryptocurrencies as a whole, there are many different opinions from the scholars today. We could summarize them into four main opinions. The first is the opinion of those who have basically stopped and they've said, we are not going to speak about it. We don't know whether it's halal. We don't know whether it's haram. We don't really understand how it works. And they have their right and they are respected for doing that because a person, again, should not speak about something that he has no knowledge about. So that's the first category of people. The second are those who mention or those who say that it is completely haram and prohibited. And they mention quite a few adilla or quite a few different pieces of evidence. The first, as we mentioned, is this is something which is decentralized. How is it possible for somebody other than the government to make or to print money? How is it possible for a normal person to be in charge of the money supply? Another thing, when it comes to national security, what happens, for example, if it gets hacked or if it gets stolen or if there's a transaction that you want to reverse and something occurs on this network, there is no person we can go to, number one. And number two, it's out of the jurisdiction of government. So that's the first piece of evidence they use. They also mention that during history, when it comes to money, especially when it comes to Islamic history, the leader has always been in charge when it comes to money supply, when it comes to providing currency. And it was never given to anybody else. That is why there are scholars like Imam Ahmad rahimahullah is mentioned that from his sayings, he said that it's not befitting. In fact, it's not allowed for the normal people to start making their own dirhams and dinars. Because if they were left to do this, they would do all sorts of things. They would cheat for example, if it's gold, people could add extra iron, make it impure, it could be fake gold, etc., etc. So the first reason we find why they mentioned it's haram is to protect the interests of others. The second reason they mention is there is no physical presence when it comes to these coins. It's just a bunch of numbers running from here to there. And when we look in history, we find that gold had a physical presence, silver had a physical presence. The currency we use today is either in the form of paper or coins, and it has a physical presence. The third thing they mention is that the price fluctuation, this is like a bubble, it goes up and it goes down. It's like gambling, you're putting money in, you're not sure what's going to happen, it's going to go up, it's going to go down, you're not really sure, you're just throwing money and the price fluctuation is too big. Number four is when it comes to these cryptocurrencies, a lot of the activities used for them are illegal activities when it comes to drugs especially or anything that's illegal. According to this opinion, people tend to use these things. The fifth piece of evidence is we don't even know who the person who made this is. Is he a person? Is it a group of people? Is it somebody who's trying to crash the whole financial system? We don't know who he is and hence we can't trust him. We don't know what his or their motives are. These are the main pieces of evidence presented by this group of scholars. As we can see here, the evidence is totally logical, understandable, and it's something we can relate to. The third opinion is of the scholars who say that this is permissible. And why do they say this? Number one, as we mentioned before, that when it comes to buying and selling, 
everything is halal unless it can be proven that it is haram. And there is nothing clear cut to prove that this is haram. Number two, a lot of the fuqaha, a lot of the scholars mentioned from the very beginning, whatever the people agree to use as a medium of exchange or money becomes money and it takes the role of money. So for example, at the time of Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, it's mentioned that when gold was hard to come by, he wanted to cut the camels and he wanted to use their hides or their skins as a medium of exchange. As we mentioned before, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum told him not to do that, not because it was haram, but because they feared that if this happened, there would be no camels. Everybody would kill off the camels. When responding to the evidence of the scholars who mentioned that it is haram, they mentioned quite a few things. Number one, the scholars who said it's haram, they said this is decentralized. And from the very beginning, the person who is in charge of the money supply or issuing money has always been the leader or in today's world we could say the leader has appointed a ministry like the ministry of finance or a treasury for example those who say it's halal they say that yes we agree with you however we can either take this as something being apparent and we can take whatever the scholars said where they made sure only the leader is the one who can issue money, we can take it for its face value and say it's haram, or we can look at the reason for them to have said this. They then mentioned that these statements, when studied deeper, have a reason to them. The first reason is, especially when it came to the olden days, if money was given to normal people to issue we agree there would be a lot of cheating and deception. People would do all sorts of things. Another thing is the money itself wouldn't be uniform. You'd find if I had to make my own gold coins and you had to make your own gold coins and this one had to make their own gold coins, the weight is different, the size is different, the purity is different and that would cause a lot of confusion and as we mentioned there would be a lot of deception. So we agree with you up to there. However, if we find something where there is no deception involved. So when it comes to Bitcoin, for example, the network is very secure. The coins themselves, you cannot counterfeit these coins. So when we look at the reasoning that you mentioned, we find that it is not present when it comes to Bitcoin. The second opinion they mention is there is no physical presence to these coins. As for gold and silver and the currency we use today, it has a physical presence, whether it's in the form of paper or coins. The people who say it's halal or permissible, they responded to this by saying most of the currency in circulation is not physical currency. It's not physical papers or coins. Rather, it's a whole group of numbers in a lot of hard drives and computers moving from account to account. And this even according to one of the central banks, the Central Bank of England, if I remember correctly, they say that more than 90% of the currency in circulation has not been printed. What is it? It's all to do with numbers and digits going from this one to this one. And if you want to read more about this, look at how the banks do what's called fractional reserve lending. So this is the second piece of evidence and this is how they responded to it. The third piece of evidence of those who say that it is haram, they say that the price is unpredictable. It goes up and down. It's like you are gambling. Those who say it's halal, 
one of their responses to this is when you look at other currencies, they also go up and they also go down at times even more than Bitcoin. And nobody ever said that these currencies were haram because of how they went up or how they went down. Some may argue that the norm is government currencies are meant to be stable and their inflation rate is very low at a rate of 1 to 5% every year. As for those countries with hyperinflation, this is not the norm. Hence, the rule doesn't apply to this. However, when we look at it in reality, we find most countries... They suffer from inflation or hyperinflation because it's how the system has been built. If somebody says or what's taught today in economics is that if a country has inflation from 1% to 3% every year, that's termed very good. Okay, what happens if somebody is saving their money? Over 10 years, they've lost 30%. If you had a million dollars, over 10 years, you would have lost $300,000. Is that good or is that not good? Another thing to remember, especially with the money system we have, because it's debt-based, they always devalue your money. So if you are saving money or if you are saving your currency, every year the value, so the number, it may be a $100 bill that you have at home, but every year generally the value of this currency goes down. So what you could buy with $100 today, let's say you could buy 10 loaves of bread. After a year, you might only be able to buy nine. So the current system we have, because it's debt-based and they need to stimulate spending, they make sure that a person who is saving is actually punished. So you lose value. They're encouraging you to spend it so that if you spend, obviously the money carries on flowing and the system carries on working. So that is how those who said it's permissible responded to this. They said not only do cryptocurrencies go up and down, also, when it comes to fiat currencies, they go up and down. In fact, at times even more than cryptocurrencies. And nobody said they were haram. The next piece of evidence that those who said it's haram use is they say that it's mainly used for illegal activities, for drugs, etc., etc. As for those who said it's halal, they say that according to the statistics, most crime and drug-related offenses, etc., etc., illegal activities are not carried out in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. Rather, cash is used for them and there are various resources and references that prove this. So when it comes to your fiat currency, your US dollar, whatever it may be, people may use it to do something haram that didn't make the currency itself haram. The next piece of evidence they responded to is when the scholars who said it's haram, they said that we don't know who the owner or the founder is, the person who actually invented this thing. Those who say it's halal respond by saying that it doesn't matter whether we know the person who made it or not. Why? Because he left us with a set of rules, which is the software and the code and the paper, and we are able to test it. If the rules he left works, we use the rules. We go according to the rules, regardless of who the person was. And when you look at, for example, your algebra or any other mathematical equations, you find that regardless of who the person who came up with that theory or that equation was, that's got nothing to do with the actual fact that he's trying to present. We look at the fact, 
if it works, if this rule works, regardless of who that person was, we use the rule. So what they are saying here is that when you look at Bitcoin, the code is open source. It's for everybody to see. Whoever wants to try and hack it can try. People have tried and nobody's succeeded till now. It's one of the most, if not the most secure network. And it hasn't been hacked. So whether we know who made this or not doesn't really harm us. The last piece of evidence I will mention that those who say it's haram, they say that these are just numbers running around from one place to another. Where does the value come from? Those who say it's halal, they say that firstly, let's look at modern day things that we use. So for example, if you take a company like Google, Google is a multi-billion dollar company. What is Google? Does somebody say that Google is just an algorithm? Hence, it got no value. Hence, all this money that's been put in it is put behind nothing. No, nobody says this. In the same way when it comes to Bitcoin, those who say it's halal, it's not just digits or numbers running around. Another thing, when it comes to the value part of it, what makes a Bitcoin 6,000 or 7,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 or zero for that matter? We don't find that it has any intrinsic value. Well, when it comes to fiat currency, it's a paper with a denomination written on it. But the people have agreed to give it value. There is confidence that has been given in the system. Another thing, when it comes to Bitcoin, there is a whole network of miners, which we will get to. And this network has so much power in it. And there are so many resources that have been spent in order to maintain this network. Same like how we mentioned Google is an algorithm at the end of the day. What gives it value? So in the same way, when it comes to this network, there are other pieces of evidence that those who say it's completely haram mention. However, we will just mention these for now. These are the main evidences that are used. The fourth opinion, which to be very honest, is a contradictory opinion. It's an oxymoron. It is the opinion of those scholars. And remember, we respect all scholars, those who have tired themselves, learned a lot and tried to come up with a ruling. They mention that when it comes to Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, okay, we find that there is nothing haram to it. However, because it's not controlled by the government or somebody in charge or the leaders and because of national security, etc., we find that it will be halal or we say it will be halal on condition that it is run by the central authority. Now, to be very honest, when looking at this opinion at face value, it makes a lot of sense. However, practically, it's contradictory and it doesn't really make sense because the whole cryptocurrency thing is a decentralized network. So it's not really possible for the government to run the whole network or even get in control of it and then decide how much money should be given or how many coins should be issued, etc., etc. So at face value, it's an opinion that looks quite appealing. However, when it comes to practical, it's something that's quite contradictory and an oxymoron, something which is almost impossible. So here we've discussed the money side of it, the coin side of it, which is Bitcoin in this instance. The second aspect we have to look at is the technology side of it. What is the blockchain? We briefly explained that the blockchain is basically a chain of blocks. Every block has bits of information. When it comes to the Bitcoin network, because they want to maintain trust, they did not appoint one central person to be in charge. Rather, what happened 
is that anybody who has a computer, who has computing power connected to the internet and a few other requirements, they are able to have their own copy of this ledger. Every 10 minutes, there is a block of new information that is recorded to the old block. These blocks are distributed ledger technology. That basically means that the records of these transactions are distributed in more than one place. So I give you an example. Today, if me and you are carrying out business, I have my accounts, my books, you also have your books. What happens if, for example, I had to cheat in my books? So you paid me and then I had to cheat and say that you didn't pay me. And let's say you forgot to record this transaction or you recorded it. However, I go to your accountant and I tell him, you know what, don't record this or change this transaction. Who would know? Besides Allah, nobody would know. However, when it comes to this blockchain or this distributed ledger network, we find that there is more than one person keeping the record. Hence, it is distributed. So you find people all over the world, thousands and thousands or millions of people keeping a record of this. And because of this, the whole network reaches consensus. So for them to move to the next block every 10 minutes, they all have already agreed on what happened previously. So let's take our previous example when it comes to me and you transacting. Let's say I have my copy of the accounts. You have your copy of the accounts. If there's another 100 people all over the world who have a copy of these accounts, even if I had to change my account, or even if you had to change your account, or even if I had to change both of our accounts, there are still 98 more people who have a record of this transaction. Hence, I can't cheat when it comes to this system. So that's basically the blockchain technology summarized. We must remember that blockchains, there are two types. There's a public blockchain. A public blockchain means Anybody who wants to go and look at it or maintain it and they want to actually record transactions, they are able to. And this is a very secure way of doing things. And then there is a private blockchain. When you find a lot of banks or a lot of centralized companies speaking about blockchain, 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 this is the type of blockchain they are talking about. And to be very honest, when you study it, yes, it will benefit them in certain ways we will mention later. However, the trust aspect still doesn't remain. And the whole point why the Bitcoin network was created or made was because of the trust issue. So if you have a private blockchain, there's only four or five people keeping the books of everybody else coming back to our business transaction. Let's say we are keeping the books of everybody, a million people. It's very easy for us five to gather and agree to alter the books and nobody would know. Also, when it comes to these private blockchains, let's say every few minutes when a new block happens, if we decide that something previously happened we don't really like, we can go back, rewind the blockchain and change what we want and carry on and nobody would know. So an important thing to remember that they are public blockchains and private blockchains. So now we've covered two aspects of this. We've covered the coins part of it and the technology side of it in brief. The third side we have to look at or the third aspect is when it comes to the actual recording of these transactions. Who records these transactions? And why would a person record these transactions? What incentive is there for a person to spend money on computers and electricity and so many other resources in order to do this? We mentioned before that on the Bitcoin network, every 10 minutes, there is a new block 
that is mined or recorded. Whenever there is a new block that is mined or recorded, we find that there are new coins that come into existence. And these coins are given to the person who is successfully able to record the block. To go into a bit more detail, we rewind a little bit. When it comes to the blockchain, we find, as we mentioned, that blocks are joined together. And at every block or for every block, there are new coins that come into circulation. And these new coins are rewards for those who are recording transactions or maintaining the network. So if a person is mining Bitcoin or in more simple terms, if a person is recording transactions, he is trying to record these transactions because he hopes that he will get this reward. It's called a block reward. So when it comes to Bitcoin, we find that the current reward is a lot of money. It's, I think, 12 and a half Bitcoins, which is more than $100,000. And every four years, roughly, the reward decreases. So when it comes to the Bitcoin network, we find that in the coming future, in the near future, the block rewards will be reduced. And this in turn creates a shortage, we could say, of supply. So is, there is less supply. So these miners or these people who are recording these transactions, they are doing this in the hope that they will be the ones who win this prize. How does somebody win the prize? Well, when it comes to this technology, we find that there are complicated mathematical problems that computers of very high speed and high power, they try to solve them. So there is a computer problem or mathematical problem to be more precise. And these computers are guessing, they are guessing, they are guessing. And the one that comes up with the right answer when it comes to this mathematical problem is given the privilege of mining this block and taking its reward. So all the people you hear who are mining, 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 this is basically what they are doing. They've got machines which are very powerful. They take a lot of electricity and they are hoping that their machine will be able to solve this mathematical problem and they will be rewarded. When we look at it from the Shari perspective, what is the ruling here? How do we look at this mas'ala? Do we say that this person is just gambling, he's put in a machine and... Uh, whether he wins or not, he doesn't even know he's wasting resources, he's wasting time, he's wasting money. Or is there a different way of looking at it? Again, those who said that cryptocurrencies are haram in the very beginning, this also becomes haram. However, those who say it's permissible and allowed, they look at it as a form of ju'ala, ju'al. So in the sharia, we find there is something called ju'ala, where somebody is allowed to make a challenge and they can say that anybody who does this or completes this task or is successful in this challenge, I will reward them with so and so. And this comes from the story of Yusuf alayhi salam, where Yusuf alayhi salam, when his brothers came with Binyamin and he put the drinking vessel or the cup of his into the bag of Binyamin. When they were looking for this cup or this vessel, Yusuf alayhi salam mentioned a reward for the one who finds it. Basically, he will be rewarded with what a camel can carry. He will be given a few things, fully equipped. And I guarantee that Yusuf alayhi salam was saying. So look at how Yusuf alayhi salam has given a challenge or a task. And he says that anybody who brings this thing that I want, I will reward them. 
and this is allowed in the Sharia. Again, there are two ways of doing this, or more than one, two famous ways. The first is you can say that anybody who does this exercise. So, for example, you say anybody who climbs this mountain and comes back, I will give them $100. Or you could say the first person who does this, I will give them $100. Remember, this is not betting. Betting has different rulings. Here we find that there is one party who is putting down money for a challenge and whoever completes this challenge is rewarded. As for betting, there are one-sided bets and two-sided bets where this person puts money and that person puts money and there's a lot of detail and mainly that's all haram and we will mention this in more detail later on inshallah where it's allowed and a few other rulings regarding it inshallah. So when it comes to mining, the way those who say it's permissible look at it, they say the one who is mining he is trying to solve a mathematical problem. And the network says that whoever solves this problem, they will be rewarded. Hence, he's spending a lot of resources and a lot of electricity, so many other things in order to attain this reward. And this is permissible. The same way when it comes to a challenge, you may spend all your resources and you may still not win or you may still not achieve the goal. There are many more masail when it comes to, again, the coin side of it, the technological side of it, the mining side of it. The rulings we mentioned and the debate we spoke about is mainly when it comes to Bitcoin. Most of the scholars who even spoke about this, they are mainly talking about Bitcoin. However, when we look at cryptocurrencies in general, there are thousands of cryptocurrencies in circulation. Are they all the same? Do they all have the same technology? What is the ruling when it comes to these other coins? When we look at it from a technological point of view, those that are similar to Bitcoin will take its ruling. As for those which are technologically different, sometimes there are other masail which are involved. So I give you a brief overview. As we mentioned, when it comes to Bitcoin, they are miners. They spend a lot of resources. A lot of electricity is used. There's some people who see this as a positive. They see all this money being poured into this network actually increases its security and it's something good. There are others who say that no, this is something very bad. It's unsustainable. We must find an alternative. So roughly in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, somebody proposed a new idea which is known as proof of stake. As for Bitcoin, it's built on proof of work. Proof of work means the miner themselves, when they are trying to solve this mathematical problem, there's actually some work being put in in order to record this transaction. As for proof of stake, when you look at it at the beginning, simply put, it's when somebody has coins on a certain network and because they leave their wallet open, and they are connected to the internet, they are rewarded. They are given more coins for doing nothing. Remember, when it came to the Bitcoin network, people were actually doing something and trying to find something. Here, they are doing nothing. So what is the Islamic ruling when it comes to this? Somebody has coins on this network and they leave their wallet open, connected to the internet, and they get more coins. Is this riba? What are they doing? How is their balance increasing? To understand this a bit better, we did mention that Bitcoin had an electricity problem. This concept or this idea states that instead of getting people, miners, from outside our network, why don't we use people who are inside the network, who already have the coins, 
and we decide how many coins they are because if they are holding x number of coins they have an interest in the network hence they're not really going to harm this network or try and attack it so they said if you have a stake if you have some sort of stake in this coin, come, you connect to the internet and you do a few things. There's something called a master node, there's something called staking, etc., etc., etc. Basically, you connect, you prove to us that you have these coins. And with that, they have a mechanism where they are able to prove or this person is able to verify transactions on this network. From my research and reading about this for quite a few years, I haven't really found anybody who's spoken about it. And one, two people in passing by, they did mention that this is completely haram because there is interest involved in it. How can you put money and get more money without having done anything? Personally, I think that there is a different way of looking at it. And the way to look at it is, firstly, when it comes to interest, interest in and of itself is when you are giving somebody a loan and you are getting more in return. Here, you are not giving anybody a loan. Basically, the people of the network, they said that whoever fulfills this condition and they verify a transaction will be rewarded. It's like how if somebody says that, if a person gets 90% or more, they will be given access to university. And when they are in this university, we will choose them for X, Y, and Z, and we will pay them. Similar example. So the people of the network are choosing this person to do something. He's spending time and resources when it comes to his internet connection and a few other things. And he's being rewarded for that. And that is another way of looking at it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So in this episode, we discussed this decentralized idea or concept in brief. A few important things to mention, again, when it comes to this topic. Those who say it is permissible, obviously, uh, those who are involved in this, they will have to pay zakah. Whether you find somebody who is taking the actual coins or you will have to convert your money and pay your zakah. Another thing to mention Obviously, because there are so many cryptocurrencies out there. Yes, if you are taking an opinion where people say it is haram or it is illegal where you are, you are entitled to do that. However, in certain places where it is legal and you are taking the opinion of uh, people who say it is halal, then that is for you also. However, when it comes to these coins, we must remember in general, yes, for those who say they are permissible, you can deal with any coins. As long as the coin itself was not made specifically for haram. So you find there are some coins out there which are, for example, pornography coin, etc., etc. These coins were made for a specific purpose. As for coins that can be used for good and for bad, we've mentioned their ruling before. Another important thing to mention is this is something new. It's new technology. There will be coins that fail. There will be coins that success. This whole concept will evolve. Remember, if anything, this is the first time in history that we know of where a person can send something to another person. They can send value over the internet without having to trust a third party. And this is groundbreaking and revolutionary and Allah knows best. But this concept, the fact that people were able to come out with it now will change the world, I think, and will change the way we do business. Remember, when it comes to centralized organizations, they will use this technology also. 
it may not be the most appropriate when it comes to the money supply because we spoke about private blockchains and the problems they have. And for them, it's just like the old system and having a very big database. But they will use it in other places and it will be of benefit. So, for example, if you want to carry out your accounting or you want to get your haqq, something which is your right, you want to get it recorded, with this technology in the future, you will be able to do this without, for example, needing to visit a government office. They will have it all online. And because there will be something called a smart contract, where you will basically uh, do your transaction or do whatever needs to be done, and it will be recorded. Another way in which this technology will be of benefit is when it comes to something called smart contracts. So when it comes to your companies that want to float on the stock market or the stock exchange, you find they have to go through a centralized broker or brokerage house or bank and they agree and after that they put their money or they put their shares, sorry, on the stock market. So here they have to go through somebody centralized. However, with this technology, eventually what they'll be able to do is in the form of coins, they will be able to issue their shares and people will be able to buy directly. Another way in which people will benefit from this technology is when it comes to social media. We find today social media is quite centralized where Facebook or Twitter, they own whatever happens on their platforms. Hence, they own the data and they give access to it, especially when it comes to advertising purposes, etc. With this technology, things may change and you have a decentralized social media network, so nobody actually owns all your data. Hence, this whole technology, Wallahu alam, Allah knows best, will be used to cut out the middlemen or businesses in the middle. Again, as Muslims, it's important for us to know about technological advancements and how things work. And we will see in the same way how the internet, when it began, it was very different. Also, what's interesting to mention is the first ever transaction that occurred on the internet was the selling of drugs between university students. So if people had to look at it back then, they would have said that, no, the internet is used for haram. Hence, it is completely haram. However, things evolve, things change, things advance. The same way the early internet came and it evolved, there was the dot-com bubble. And after that, you got companies that we use today, for example, Facebook, etc., etc. So things evolve. With that, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us goodness. I mean, there's a lot more that can be mentioned. However, we have tried to mention it in brief. I do apologize for having taken a lot more time than usual. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us all beneficial knowledge. Ameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.